What does Devarim mean? Does anybody remember? Words, yeah, words. And this is, we're winding down the Torah cycle. So every year we go through the Torah cycle. The first five books of the Bible are divided into weekly sections called parshiot or portions. There's 54 of them. And we've got, we're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy for 10 weeks. And then we end out the Torah cycle. So after the Torah cycle is over, I'm actually, we're not, we're not going to go back to it. You can study it, you know, privately on your own, obviously. I'm going to be teaching through the entire book of Acts. So we're going to deviate. We've done the Torah portions for three years now. So there's three years worth of teaching on the internet you can listen to and glean from. And, uh, but yeah, so we're winding down uh, Devarim. Winding down the Torah. Here's why it's the book of Deuteronomy in English is called Devarim. It's Every book of the Torah is named such because the first few words in that book. So if I were to read this, starting from right to left, this is the Hebrew language right here. It says, Ele ha-devarim. You see this in yellow there? That's, that's the word devarim. It means the words. Okay? So, Ele ha-devarim Moshe el Yisrael. And these are the words that God spoke to Moses in all of Israel. All right? Be'evet, be, uh, I'm sorry, be'ev, be'ev, be'yarden, on the on the far side of the Jordan, on the far side of the Jordan. Okay, that's where this gets its name from. Devarim, words. So Deuteronomy is an, is kind of from the Greek Deuteronomos. Does anyone know what that means? Nomos is a very common Greek word for law. Deutero being second. So we call this book in English second law, or really it's derived from the Greek, but in Hebrew we call it Devarim, which just means the words, okay? Why is it called the second law in Greek? Why is it called Deuteronomos? Because it is kind of a kind of a rehashing of what happened in the prior four books. Moses is standing up and he's saying, guys, let's go through a little history now, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna reiterate all the commandments that were just given from Genesis, to the end of Numbers, okay? So that's why he called, That's why they call it the second law. If you have a Bible, which I hope you do, or something you can read along with me, go to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy 1. Devarim Echad. And you'll see right here at the beginning. Deuteronomy, so it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, there are 70 new commandments given. And it is a review, but there are some new aspects to it. Let's read verse 1, and we're going to read to verse uh, 2 or 3. These are the Devarim that Moshe spoke to all Israel on the far side of the Yarden, in the desert, in the Aravah, across from Suf, between Paran, Tophel, Lavan, Hatzerot, and D Zahav. It is just 11 days journey. You know, there was a British guy in the 1800s that did it in 11 days. Interesting, right? I think his name was Robinson. Can't remember exactly. His, his last name was Robinson, but he did it. He actually went out to prove that you could make this journey in 11 days. But how long did it take them to journey from Egypt to Canaan? 40 years, yeah. 40 years. So Moses is giving this, and the, the, the book of Deuteronomy, or Devarim, it consists of 34 chapters. And chapters are a relatively new thing in the Bible. 
just so you know. They're not, they're not in like our Torah scroll that we have, but there's 34 of them. And it consists of 10 portions. So like I said, we're gonna be in the book of Devarim for around 10 weeks, okay? And it consists of 23,008 words. It's a very uh, heavy text of, in terms of volume of, te of words. Um, not, not, the, not the longest book in the Torah in terms of words, but close to it. Now, Yeshua, our master, our savior, he quotes from the book of Devarim several times. Although it's not his favorite book, does anyone know his favorite book to quote from? Psalms, yeah. Psalms is his favorite book. Deuteronomy, I think, is his second favorite book that he quotes from. But he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy when he's summing up the law and the prophets. He says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy when he cites any of the Ten Commandments. He's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy when discussing divorce, when defining church discipline, when telling that a man is to fear God, when telling that man is to live by the word of God and to keep his word. All right? So Yeshua, remember, he starts his ministry off and he goes to the wilderness for how many days? 40, which is a symbol of the same amount of years. It's a picture of the years that Israel was in the wilderness, the Midbar, right? And it's there that he's tempted how many times? Three times by Satan, right? It, and if you look, there's a pattern all through the Bible where there's always, wherever you see the number 40, there's going to be the number three, okay? Look for that pattern all throughout the Bible. You'll see it. Um, but anyways, he's tempted. And what does he respond with? The book of Deuteronomy. Yeah. It was a very important book to our master, wasn't it? Our rabbi. The book of Devarim can be divided into these four sections. You've got Moses' first speech, his second speech, his third speech, and then epilogue. Okay? And it's based on geography. So he's giving these different speeches in different places as he's traveling, as they're approaching the land. This is like Moses' dying wish for his people, with the sheep that he's been pasturing for 40 years. Now, what's interesting about the book of Deuteronomy, and this is from, those, you know, if you're a super big Bible nerd, you can go to Deuteronomy and Treaty Texts, a critical re-examination of Deuteronomy. It's a, it's a doctoral dissertation um, submitted by a guy by the name of Nicholas Polk, where he goes through and he examines the book of Deuteronomy and compares it to ancient Near Eastern suzerain treaty structure, where you have a preamble, you have a historic prologue, general stipulations of the covenant, specific stipulations, blessings and curses, a document clause, and then you have witnesses. That is the ancient pattern in the template of a suzerain treaty between two people. And the book of Deuteronomy parallels that to the T. So who is Israel making a treaty with, a covenant with? With their God, yeah. With our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He just, he uses the legal template. It's like he went to legal Zoom and downloaded a template and used that to make a covenant with the people of Israel. Same thing, he's using that template basically. But one of the key concepts in the book of Devarim is the concept of life. What is the Hebrew word for life? Chai, yeah, or chaim in the plural form. The root chai, to live, alive, or life, it's found 39 times in the book of Devarim, which, what does 39 correspond to? You say 39. Wait, that sounds familiar. How many times Yeshua was flogged, right? By his stripes, we are healed. He gives us life through his stripes. 
There's nothing coincidental here. Although the root chai is very common in the Hebrew scriptures, even a cursory reading of Deuteronomy leads one to the conclusion that life is a key concept and a theme in this book that we're about to embark in, okay? But here's a distribution of the word chai without, uh, throughout this book of Deuteronomy. And so I just showed you the breakout of Moses' speeches, right? He's got three speeches and then an epilogue. Well, here's where he uses this word chai six times there in his first speech, 20 times in his second speech, nine times, and then four times. So right there in Moses' second speech is the, the highest concentration of this word chai, okay? Which is life. Have you guys ever seen that? It's very common for especially like Jewish women to wear that necklace that says chai on it. You ever seen that? Somebody nod your head, have you ever seen that? Okay, so what do you have? Let's read through some of these occurrences. I want to prove it to you that the book of Deuteronomy is obsessed with life. And now, O Israel, Oh, and as I'm reading these occurrences, I want you to look for commonalities. Make sense? Look for things that have, they all have in common. And now, O Israel, listen, Shema, to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you. And to do them, that you may chai, live, and go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has given you. Deuteronomy 5.33, you shall walk in all the way the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may chai. And that it may go well with you, and that you may chai long in the land that you shall possess. Deuteronomy 6.24 And the Lord commanded us all to do these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us and keep us chai, alive, as we are this day. Deuteronomy 8.1 The whole commandment that I command you today is you shall be careful to do, that you may Chai and multiply and go in and take possession of the land uh, that the Lord swore to your fathers. You starting to see some commonalities here? Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may chai and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may chai. Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 and 16. See, I've set before you today life and good. Or we can read it in Hebrew, chai and tov. Death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments, and his statutes, and his rules, then you shall chai and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of. What did you see commonality-wise? In all those verses, I think you just read five or six verses. What did you see they had in common? Anybody? Yeah, they had life. Yeah. About obedience. Yeah, commandments. Anything else? Blessings. Yeah. Blessings. I heard somebody living in the land. Yeah, it's all connected to the land. Obedience. Life. It's like an eclipse of those three things is where God wants his people. To live, to be obedient, and to be in the land. Isn't that interesting? All occurrences describe chai as the consequence or result of obedience and covenant loyalty to Hashem, to God. All occurrences link life to the occupation and or long-term possession of the promised land. Like someone pointed out, it's about the land. Quick rabbit trail. If you need a good teacher... Uh, someone that you can trust and is doctrinally like really squared away. Grant Luton met him personally. 
great man, great teacher. He's been doing it for 25 plus years. Um, I communicate with him on a regular basis. He's based out of Akron, Ohio, and he's the pastor of Beth Tikkun Messianic Fellowship, Messianic Congregation. You can listen to all his teachings on, on their website. But he says this interesting thing when I was listening to his commentary on this week's Torah portion. He says, who, according to Deuteronomy, will enter the land? Number one, the book of Deuteronomy says, a redeemed people will enter the land. A tested people will enter the land. An obedient people, a broken people, courageous people, faithful and trusting people, and then victorious people. So the book of Deuteronomy describes if you want to enter his land, his promised land, you've got to be all of those things. And if you're lacking in any of those qualities, then you're lacking in your ability to enter the land. And it reminded me of Matthew 24, 12 through 13. Because of the multiplication of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. So I think we are called to be those things as well. The Torah applies to those who are native born and grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. I think that we need to be redeemed people. I think we need to be tested people. Courageous, broken, obedient, victorious, faithful, and trusting people. Are we lacking in any of those? Interesting. Maybe you could uh, take a picture of that, write it down, or I could send you these slides and you could pray about some of those areas where you might be lacking in your life or in your faith. Brokenness. That's hard to come by in the United States of America sometimes. Rabbit trail complete. At least five of these occurrences of Chai are introduced by the preposition Lema'an, so that you can. In other words, do this, Lema'an, so that you can Chai, live. Right? So the Chai is contingent upon the part before the Lema'an, which is typically obedience to his word. Two occurrences in Deuteronomy refers to God's revealed will as the source of life. In other words, his word, his Torah, as the source of life. And that's in Deuteronomy 8, 3 and 32, 47. So what is the source of life according to Deuteronomy? It's his word, his revealed will is the source of life. And that's why we say that when we put the Torah scroll away every time we get the Torah scroll out, we say it's the Eitz Chayim He. It is the tree of life, don't we? And those who take hold of it are praiseworthy because it's the source of life. Here's an example in the Hebrew of Chai. Now, my Hebrew students in the room, I want you to try to figure out where I'm reading from. You all know this passage in this room, but I want to see if you can figure out. Ki lo al halecham le bado yichai ha'adam. Okay, tracking so far? Let me turn this way. Ki al kol moza pi adonai yichai ha'adam. Anybody know what I just read? Who wants to take a guess? What? You're close. Well, it has Adam in there, so that would be, but no. Good guess. What is, uh, what is, what is lechem? Bread. So man does not live, chai, so Adam does not live on bread, levdo, alone. But what does he live on? He lives on whatever, all that. It says all, mozah. 
Adonai out of the mouth of the Lord. That's what Ha'adam lives on. So Ha'adam is not Israel. It's not B'nai Israel. Ha'adam is all of humanity. Adam is every descendant of Adam. Raise your hand if you're a descendant of Adam in here. Then you do not live on bread alone, but you also have to live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So here, this is one of the things that Yeshua quotes when being tempted, right? This is one of those power, power plays that he makes against Satan. He says, man doesn't live on bread alone, but man lives on every word that comes out of the mouth. So meaning is that even though Israel was fed with physical manna, right? They were kept alive physically. Many, like, like many Americans are kept alive physically and well fed, right? But we can still die to a lack, due to a lack of obedience. And I'm going to submit that the United States of America has really good feeding habits and eating habits. Like we're well fed people. But spiritually speaking, we're all starving to death, aren't we? We're all lost and without hope. And we're getting, things are getting even more bleak in the United States and confused over what is true. What is life? How do I stay alive? And it's, you know, we always ask this question when a celebrity or someone like famous or very wealthy or beautiful takes their own life and commits suicide. What do we always say? It's a three letter word. Robin Williams takes his own life. Funny guy, had it all going for him. Very wealthy, what do we say? Why? Why did he do that? Even us here with the biblical worldview, we look at someone like that and we say, why? As if, as if we really believe that Robin Williams was not starving to death spiritually, when absolutely he probably was. We should be the type of people who say, let me tell you why. Because Robin Williams was looking for a way back into the Garden of Eden, whether he knew it or not, and he couldn't find the entrance. But I know the door. I know the way. I know the truth. I know the life. We should be a people who can stand up and say that to people around us. Not why. Why would he do that? Because if you're asking why about a celebrity committing suicide, that means you think that all that they had and all that they amassed in their life is the answer to life. And it's not. We're going to get into that a little bit more. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Messiah, was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So Chai, it really means a fullest existence. It's like a re restored Edenic state. If you reach Chai, if you're really alive, it's like you've been recreated somehow, reborn somehow into a different life. And it, it, it represents like physical and spiritual existence. It's the combined essence of two. You're in complete existence, okay? Now the Greek equivalent, how many of you know that the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, the, the Old Testament, it was translated into Greek 250 years before Yeshua was born. And that is called the Septuagint. 250 years before his birth. They say, let's take the Hebrew Bible and translate it into Greek. What Greek word did they choose to fully encapsulate this concept of chai? 
They chose the Greek word zoe, right there, zoe. Zeta, omega, eta, zoe. So in other words, zoe is like, it's like chai. It's like full existence. It's the spiritual and it's the physical. It's the material and it's the immaterial. You know, I, I like the Greek language, and the more I study Greek, the more I realize that even as a believer in Yeshua, sometimes, you know, we put a lot of emphasis on the Hebrew, and Messianic world puts a lot of emphasis on learning the Hebrew language, and that's good, and I teach Hebrew, but Greek is very important as well, because it gives us a, a glimpse into the mind of what the rabbis and the great thinkers and translators of the Bible were thinking 250 years before the time of Messiah. Did you know there's three different words for life in Greek? And they're very specific, like there's four different words for love, right? In, in Greek, you've got bios, which is where we get biology from, right? Like bio, it means life. Um, then there's suke, which is like soul. The immaterial aspect of Gabriel, which is the suke. Whereas the flesh and the bones and the sinew and the muscle, that's, that's my bios. Then you've got a third category of existence within the Greek language, and that's zoe. Zoe is eternal divine life from God. It is the combination, it's your complete existence. It's immaterial and material, okay? And it is all throughout the Septuagint, and it is all throughout the New Testament, and we're gonna see some places where that's the, that's the case. So let's go to the Septuagint. Remember, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, right? So we could read Genesis 2-7, and figure out what did the rabbis who translated the Hebrew Bible think was the equivalent of the breath of life. What Greek word did they choose? Did they choose bios? Did they choose suke? Or did they choose zoe? Well, here it is, right here. You can see, zeta, omega, eta. They chose, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the, the life, the breath of zoe. And he became a living Zoe-an, okay? That's what they said, ah, this is, this is what it is right here. That Zoe is like complete essence of man that God breathed into him and animated his body with, Zoe. Genesis 2, 9, we see it again. And out of the ground, the Lord God made a spring, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, uh, to the sight and good for food. The tree of Zoe, was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Here, Paul uses Zoe. And he says in Acts 17, 28, he's actually quoting, you know, he's quoting um, Greek mythology here. He says, all Zoe depends on God for its creation and continuation. He says, in him we have life. We have Zoe. And move and have our being. So Paul knows that as well. Did you know in Luke 15, 13, it uses this Greek word, zoe. The prodigal son squandered his inheritance by zoe. He was taking his essence, his very existence, the immaterial and material, and he was squandering it recklessly. Doesn't it add a little bit more gravity to that story? So the book of Devarim is making the claim that obedience and faithfulness brings life, chai, and restores one's ability to approach God's presence in a garden, so to speak, right? What do we call that? That's the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle had all these garden symbols in it, like the tree and the and right? So if you can do the 
commandments, guess what? You get to go back into the presence. You get to experience what it was like in Eden to a certain extent. Is there any other book of the Bible that's fixated and kind of obsessed with Zoe? You guys think of any? Any books of the Bible? All right. I see you looking. What? Proverbs. What was it? Proverbs. Proverbs, maybe. Maybe. Not the one I'm thinking of, but maybe. All right. You want a hint? Here's your hand. <laughs> Tim Tebow knew which one was. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting Zoe. Everlasting Zoe. And you've heard the female name Zoe. That's where that comes from. That means life. It's a Greek word for life. So the word Zoe in the New Testament occurs 66 times. 36 of those times in the entire New Testament can be found in the book of John. John, the writer of, of the, the fourth gospel, is obsessed with Zoe, is obsessed with life, just like Deuteronomy is. They're connected that way. So here, let's see some uh, occurrences right out, the, right out the gate. Here he goes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was Zoe. And the Zoe was the light of men. Mm. So he's calling Yeshua the Messiah Zoe. He, here, Yeshua is talking in John 10. This is part of the seven I am's. Remember those? I am the door. If anyone wants to enter to me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have Zoe and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not know and own the sheep sees the wolf coming and pieces out. <laughs> and that's why I always warn people, if someone is trying to market the teaching of the word of God to you in a way that you're like, ah, it's kind of rubs me, but it seems a little bit a little bit deceptive. Be careful. They might be a hired hand. That's why I love the fact that we have hours upon hours upon hours of teaching on the Torah portion on various topics and anything on our website that you can download free of charge. Why? Because Gabe Rutledge is not a hired hand. Alright? I pray that I'm not a hired hand. I want to make all that available freely given so I'm going to freely give it back. Yeshua answered John 14.6 I am the way, the truth, and the zoe. So he's, he's saying I'm the embodiment of that stuff that was breathed into Adam that animated him. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the claims of Yeshua via John's gospel are this. Because of the saving power of Messiah, neither human existence nor the body ends at death. Now we live sometimes like it does end at death, doesn't it? Don't we? Like, oh man, we fear death so much as if in our biblical worldview, as if believers in Messiah, that that's the end of the story. And we say, we gotta live life, you know, YOLO, right? No, that's not true. Because if you're a follower of Messiah, if you have him, if you've been redeemed and bought by him and you've lived a faithful life according to his teachings, your life will continue. 
That's not the end of your zoe. That's the hope that we have. Death holds no power over those who possess true life. Have you guys ever met someone and they have an atheistic worldview? And I'm gonna go back one slide because everyone's reading that slide. <laughs> Here's what, in atheism, by the way, guys, is if you look at human history, atheism is really weird because it, it's nowhere in human history until modern times. All of the ancients knew there must be a higher power. Richard Dawkins would have looked like a fool to the ancients, which I digress. <laughs> which Richard Dawkins now is saying that we're created by aliens, go figure. But atheism is such a new and foolish concept. But here is something you can ask an atheist, and you want to watch, you want to watch the hope drain out of an atheist's eyes. You want to watch hope leave their 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 face. Ask them this question. What happens to you when you die? And watch the hope disappear out of their face in an instant. What do you think happens to you when you die? And they'll stand there and be like, I guess I just decay. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> okay. Well, I have hope. I have Zoe. I, I live on. I will be resurrected. Would you like that? And I've done a teaching on before on five questions you should ask every atheist. If you want to know those five questions, um, come see me. I'd I, I love to give those to you. And it segues into how to share the gospel with atheists. But um, Yeshua does a couple things. By claiming to be Zoe, and to having Zoe, and to give Zoe, it changes our paradigm, doesn't it? He says such, uh, such a redirection of life requires a death to the current way of living. Paul in Galatians 2.20 says, No longer I who zo, but Messiah who ze in me. This transformation will make us alive, zontas, for God in Messiah Yeshua, he says in Romans 6.11. So that our hope is not for this zoe only. I like this, what Paul says here. If in Messiah... 1 Corinthians 15, 9-22. If in Messiah we have hope in this Zoe, then we are all people most to be pitied. <laughs> have you ever seen someone who's living like they put all of their hope on this Zoe, on, on this life? Have you ever seen someone that's just squandering everything on this life? They should be pitied. But in fact, Messiah has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as through a man came death, Adam, right? Through a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Messiah shall all be made and given so a. Yeshua is also making the claim that he is the author of Zoe. In Acts 3.15, Peter and John call him the author of Zoe. They said, you killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. He is the pre-existing word through whom all life came in in the beginning. Yeshua is also saying that he's the source of eternal life. This, this term occur, occurs 42 times in the New Testament. 14 of the instances of the phrase eternal life are actually in the present and not in the future. That's interesting, right? 
So the writers that use this 14 times are saying you're already living eternal life. You're already living in the Zoe that is eternal. That's it's something we don't think about because we think like, oh, well, I'm going to die. My physical body is going to die. Yes, true. But you're already starting your eternity. The immaterial aspect, your nephesh, your soul is already continuing that. John 5, 24, Yeshua says that the one who hears this message and believes has already passed from death to Zoe. We who are disciples can be described as living. We're like living stones, Peter says. We're like a living sacrifice, Paul says in Romans 12, 1. And we have a living hope, First Peter says. And then let's go back to Deuteronomy. Moshe says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I've set before you, Zoe in the Greek, or what was it in Hebrew? Chai, and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose the Zoe, the life, that you and your offspring may live. I believe that he was speaking to a certain extent practically, do the commandments, keep the commandments, be obedient if you can, to the best of your ability. But I think he was also speaking prophetically. Why do I say that? This is a painting here, 1896. Anybody can read, uh, is that Latin? Is it exe homo? Am I pronouncing that right? I don't know. What does that mean? It's behold the man. It's, a, it's an interesting painting to look at and to kind of study over. What's going on here? Pilate is presenting the Zoe, the way, the truth, and the life. And he's like, guys, you've got a choice. You can choose life, or you can choose Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist and an assassin and a murderer. You can choose the Prince of Peace, or you can choose someone who's trying to take the kingdom by force. Which one will you, will you want? What did Moses say to do? Choose life. What did we choose? Do you know that Barabbas' real name was Yeshua Bar Abba? So we have Yeshua Bar Abba, the son of the father, and then we have Yeshua Bar Abba. One is a fighter, an insurrectionist, a man of violence, and one is a prince of peace. One is death, one is life. There's a, uh, a Kind of a cringy story I'm going to tell you real quick that happened a couple days ago. Stacy's going to think it's funny that I'm telling the story. Uh, some of you know that I do drone photography and I like to play with my drone. And I was hovering above me earlier this week and I was doing some something and I thought it would be cool to get an aerial shot of me doing this thing. However, where I was doing this, it was about six feet from an oak tree. And you know, my drone is a very smart drone. They can sense things around it and it beeps like crazy when there's an object nearby. And because this oak tree was nearby, I was like, this thing was going crazy. It was beeping, but the beeping was annoying to me. It was inconveniencing me. So I have this little button that I can push to turn off the sensor. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this? So I turned off the sensor and it stopped beeping and it was hovering perfectly. And I, for about 10 minutes as this thing is hovering, taking aerial video of me doing this whole thing, whatever, I'm building a little project. 
uh, I set my controller down on top of the case with the lid open. And if you've ever seen the controller, it's like a little joystick thing, and it's got two little joysticks that control the movement of this little drone. And I set it down on the case with the lid open, and I go, I do some work. Well, I'm like, a couple minutes into the project, I'm like, ah, I should shut the case because I don't want dirt and stuff to get in the case. So I shut the case, totally forgetting that there's two joysticks poking up right there, and the lid hits the joysticks, and I start walking back, and then I just hear this like, what sounds like two raccoons fighting in a tree. You know, I'm like looking up like, oh no, there's my drone just getting all tangled up in that tree. And then it crashes to the ground and continues to flop around on the ground, go crazy and everything. And I run over and fortunately, it was a, there was a small um, break that actually Stacy was able to fix for me because she's more patient than I am. And, uh, but we were able to snap it back together and it fixed it. But it, it reminded me of the role of the Torah. And as we go through and we close out this Torah cycle, the Torah is like the sensors in our life, and the Holy Spirit is like, you know, it's like, hey, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And we'd be like, man, that's really inconvenient. Like, I really want to do that, right? I don't want to hear that beeping in my ear all the time. I'm going ahead and, like, just shut this book and say, you know what? I think this is okay. I think that was for them. That, that was for the Jews. Or we could say, you know what? That was, I, I think I can go right up to that line and not cross it in that particular area or whatever. But you turn that little beep off. And before you know it, you're all wrapped up in something that you did not intend to be wrapped up in. And people are having to come bail you out. Or people are like, wow, why did you, ten why did you turn the sensors off in your life? So maybe that was supposed to happen to me, but yeah. choose life. <laughs> Thank you, Carol. <laughs> I'm glad Next time I'll call Carol when I crash my drone. She's like, yes, that was supposed to happen to you. So choose life. And as we go through this Torah portion, as we go through this book of the Torah, I should say, in Devarim, I want us as a group to look at things in this book of the Torah portion in Devarim that we can practically apply to our lives. And say, this is a commandment. I see it. Can I do it? Yes, I'll do it. Let's just be really practical about it. But let's also think about the, the book's obsession with life and how that brings life. Paul says that the wages of sin are what? Death. Death. So we got to ask the question, what is sin? And you can point this out to some friends that are confused over what sin is. There's only one place in the entire Bible, at least let's say the New Testament, where sin is defined. Somebody go to 1 John 3, 4. 1 John 3, 4. Only place in the entire New Testament where we get a clear-cut definition of what sin is. Sin is lawlessness. So what is the opposite of, of sin? Lawfulness. Lawfulness. Obeying the law. The Greek word used there for, for law is nomos, which is where we get deuteronomos. So that's the only definition of sin in the entire New Testament. So the wages of that stuff is death. So how we get life is obedient to the nomos, to the law, to the Torah, through the knowledge and the redemption of his son, Yeshua. Now that stuff doesn't save us. We've been saved by grace through faith in Messiah, but we do that because we have been saved. All right, we're saved by grace, but we're rewarded by works. Mm. Uh-oh. 
I'll say it again. Saved by grace, but rewarded based on works. Don't believe me, go to James. All right, we're going to do a time of Q&A. We always save a few minutes for Q&A and any comments or questions you might have. For me, it could be about the book of Devarim. It could be, uh, why do you look so funny? Um, but yeah, what, what questions do you guys have? Yeah, Nicholas. Uh, just adding a comment, not just the book of James, but also the book of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. Paul talks about how um, our works going to be tested once we get to heaven by mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the, the altar's fire, I believe. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and it'll, it'll burn up all the works that are built on wood or, or yeah. stone or gold. Um, and we, we only get taken to heaven the ones that aren't, haven't been burnt up by, that, by God's holy fire. Well, in Matthew 5... Says Yeshua says on the Sermon on the Mount, whoever does and so teaches will be called great in the kingdom. Yeah. But whoever disobeys and so teaches will be called least in the kingdom. They may be in the kingdom, they'll just be least. Um, but good comment. It always takes a good dose of courage to be the first person to ask a question or make a comment. So thank you, Nicholas. <laughs> Anybody else have a question or comment about the Torah portion, about the book of Deuteronomy, about our faith, about our walk? about the five questions you should ask every atheist? Yeah. Yeah, so are you familiar with the Hebrew word imanu? Imanu, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you kind of explain what that is, how it relates to this core portion? Yeah, imanu is in Isaiah chapter nine, if I'm not mistaken. And that is gonna be one of the names of the Messiah, Immanuel, and it means uh, God who is with us. So imanu, it's like, He's, he's with, to be with us. And then L is the suffix part, God is with us. But you said in connection to the score portion? Does it also have, the, it might be a similar word, I might be mistaken, but does it have like a meaning of faithfulness? Oh, you're thinking of emunah. Emunah. Emunah is steadfastness. Yeah, the, the Latin equivalent to that would be fidelity or fidelis. Uh, uh, like the Marine Corps says, semper fidelis, always faithful, fidelity. And the Hebrew equivalent is emunah, emunah. And emunah is dedication through thick and thin. Like, um, it, faith is not a good, because sometimes we make faith a synonym of hope, and it's not. Like hope in Hebrew is tikva, faith is emunah. So Emunah is like Todd out there mowing the lawn. You guys know Todd mows our, our grass out here every week. So Todd and Zach did such a good job with that. Thank you guys. I know they don't want any praise for that, but I just give them. But Todd is out there the other day, like Wednesday, I saw him out there mowing. And he comes in and he's sweaty and it's hot and it's humid. And there's probably gnats bugging him like crazy. But Emunah says, keep mowing, get the job done. Now, Hope would say, I hope it doesn't rain on me because that would make emunah so much harder. Does that kind of clarify a little bit? Yeah. But the terms faith and hope are very abstract and they don't really have any concrete meaning. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Martin. You know, I'm reading that Old Testament, that Old Testament, and I always see nefesh tayah. Yeah. Not tayah. Nefesh, living soul. Yeah, living soul. Yep. Yeah, and a wild animal, like a living wild animal, is chayot. That's what um, the Sifra and Pua, the midwives, you remember the midwives who disobeyed Pharaoh? And they went and delivered the Hebrew babies anyways? 
they said that the Hebrew women are like chayots. They're like wild animals. They're very lively. <laughs> yeah. Any other comments or questions about anything? None? Guys are quiet today. Yes, Jackie. Oh, yeah, you explained the bread and the wine. What we're about to partake in is called Kiddush, and it's not communion. The Catholics stole it from, from, from communion, or from Kiddush. Uh, Kiddush just it means to sanctify, and it's tradition that on Shabbat, we're saying, you know, the meal that we're about to partake in, it's like a special third meal of Shabbat. You know, last night, our Shabbat dinner was a special meal as well, because we worship through eating. Uh, but that was, that was Arab Shabbat meal, now we're about to partake of the third meal of Shabbat, which is another special meal that we gather and we fellowship together through what's called Oneg, which is delight. And um, yeah, that's, we're just sanctifying this meal. We're saying that this is not like going to Arby's and getting Arby sandwich and something like that. This is a leftover meatloaf that we're about to eat. This is, uh, this is like we're still experiencing a foretaste of the coming kingdom. So we're all doing this little ceremony that just says, hey, what we're about to do, guys, stay focused that the meal we're about to eat is, is like the time of worship, right? But it's called Kiddush. But good point, thank you. Any other thoughts or questions, comments? Awesome, all right. Well, we'll you can always, I'll be floating around here, you can always ask me afterwards too.